Keep your Bibles at John 5, 17 through 29. That's going to be our text for this morning. Maybe you're already there. That'd be good. Two Sundays ago, we focused on the miracle at that pool called Bethesda, where Jesus healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. We learned that Jesus healed him not only because Jesus is compassionate, but because he knew that it would cause trouble with the religious leaders and thus lead to a conflict where Jesus would declare who he is and warn the nation of Israel not to reject him. The rest of chapter 5 represents one of the greatest Christological discourses in Scripture where Jesus literally declares his own deity, his godness, if you will. It features two sections. In section 1, that's 29 or 17 through 29, Jesus shows that he's equal with the Father in, in five ways, thus proving that he is God. And in section 2, that'd be 30 through 47, Jesus points to four witnesses who testify to his deity or godness. This morning, we're going to focus on section 1 and, and discover the five ways that Jesus is equal with the Father. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. The context, basically the background of what's playing out here, at this point in the narrative, Jesus is now standing before the religious leaders who were condemning him for allegedly breaking the Sabbath. You remember he had commanded that crippled man to stand on his feet and carry his bed mat, and apparently, according to these man-made regulations that these religious leaders had come up with over the last couple of hundred years, it was illegal for you to carry anything on Saturday, on the Sabbath. And so they saw this guy doing that and didn't even bother to acknowledge the fact that he'd been healed. They got ticked off about the religion, about the rule, and, uh, and that kind of transitioned and led to Jesus getting pointed out for doing, doing the healing. The guy kind of pointed the finger at Jesus, and now we see Jesus standing in front of these religious leaders, these guys, and he's about to uh, let them know who he is and, and correct them. So I think it's befitting that we pray once more before we enter this time of study. Lord, we humble ourselves and acknowledge your sovereignty and your power. And Mike nailed it at the end of his little encouragement after reading. We pray that you would help us understand the word today. It really does no good to, to just hear it. We must understand it spiritually and be transformed by it through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way anyone gets saved. That's the only way anyone gets sanctified and made a little bit more like Jesus. And so we pray that that would happen today that you would illuminate our hearts with the truth, that you would open our eyes and ears to the truth through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we might either be saved or further sanctified and made more like Jesus, conformed more to His image. That is the goal of salvation. That is what we long for. And uh, only you can perform that supernatural work. So we ask that you do that today, Lord. We humble ourselves and ask Move in power. Be here with us. Save us. Sanctify us. Have your will be done. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll take a look at this uh, first point here. Number one, and that's how I've divided it up. I'll give you the point and then give you the text and then I'll give you the commentary. 
Number one, Jesus is equal with the Father in His person. We see that in verses 17 through 18. He is equal with the Father in His person. Jesus put it like this, but Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is, and it says in 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, remember He told somebody to carry something and He was performing miracles on the Sabbath, not only was He breaking the rules, their rules, it says, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. The first thing Jesus does here is He reminds the religious leaders of how God works on the Sabbath. How the Father works on the Sabbath. When God ordained the Sabbath, that's that seventh day of rest, when He ordained it, He ordained it for man's benefit, not His benefit. When it says God rested on the seventh day in Genesis 2-2, how many of you are familiar with that section? He creates everything and then on that seventh day He takes a break. When you see that in the text there, it does not mean God stopped working. Because if God had stopped working, the universe would have imploded because He upholds it by the word of His power. All things uh, get their energy and power and, uh, and, and they're sustained in Him, in His own person. So when we see that, we don't want to think, well, God kicked back that day and watched people's court or He did what we do on the Sabbath and hung out and kind of took a break, you know. He didn't take a break. What happens in that text, text is it's a divine example for what we ought to be doing. It's an example. You're to take a break. Humans, people, you're to take a break. So we don't want to think that God had to rest, because if God has to rest, then obviously He's not omnipotent, which means all-powerful. It basically means when we see it there that, that we should obey His divine counsel and take a break from our labors. And the right understanding of the text is that we would take a break from the normal job that we work every day all week long. Doesn't mean that you can't do some things around the house, but if you work at a, at a car lot or something like that, there's a day uh, on the Sabbath day where you ought to take that day off and, and not think about working at the car lot, not think about installing a stereo, not thinking about driving that truck. You focus on being thankful that day and, and, and being, you know, having gratitude toward God. That's the true meaning of it. But if he had stopped working, the universe would have been doomed. Look at over at Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.7. You get the idea there that the creation, all of creation is sustained by God himself. And it's not as if God is running around turning switches on and managing things. He upholds all things by his sovereign power without even flinching. When he labors, it's way different than us. He can sustain things with a word or a thought quite different. God is, we must understand that God is always active, God is always working, and God never grows tired or weary. Isaiah 40 verse 28. So we get the idea there that the Sabbath is, is for man's benefit, not God's benefit. And, and, and I think some of us, including me at times, we tend to think that creation, you know, the whole universe and everything is basically self-sustaining. It isn't self-sustaining. The sovereign God is sustaining it at all times. And the moment that he ceases to sustain any quadrant or section of it, that section is doomed. If he stops it all, even for a fraction of a second, it would be destroyed. 
Now, here's the trick. These guys that were persecuting Jesus understood this. They understood this. They understood that, that, that the Sabbath was ordained for man and that, that God didn't need a break because He's God. They understood all this stuff. They believed that. They taught that. So it's kind of hard to get our minds around why they had such a problem with what's playing out here. But I'll tell you why they had a problem. Because they didn't believe Jesus is God. That's why they had a problem. Rabbis understood what Jesus was talking about here. They understood that God is all-powerful and He doesn't, you know, he, he's, he's working up till now is what Jesus says. They got all that. But Jesus just reminds these religious leaders of this key truth. And then what He does is He parallels it to Himself. Just as the Father is always working, even on the Sabbath, so is the Son. So is the Son. There's the parallel. There's where He's equal to the Father in His, his person, in His identity. Jesus' statement that he worked on the Sabbath just like the Father was nothing less than a claim to full deity and equality with God the Father. Jesus made the similar point in Matthew 12, 8, where he said, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean for Jesus, who is the Son of Man, to be the Lord of the Sabbath? It means he's above the Sabbath, not under it. He's not regulated or governed by the Sabbath. He's over it. He's the Lord over it. The, the regulations that, that existed on the Sabbath have taken the day off, and those benefits to people, they're, they're for people like us. They're not for God who is perfect, who has no need to be regulated or benefited. God needs nothing. He's perfect. Jesus is God. Jesus is perfect. So he's telling them, look, you're telling me that I've got to comply with your rules. The Father's been working through all the Sabbaths, and I'm doing the same thing. He's paralleling to God and God's person. Also, Jesus' words served as a subtle rebuke to the Jewish legalistic system under which he had been indicted for doing good and showing mercy on the Sabbath. It's like he totally rebukes these guys. I did something good for somebody. I healed somebody, and you got a problem with that. There's something faulty about your religion if you got a problem with Jesus healing somebody on the day where he's not supposed to do that. First of all, who came up with the rule he's not supposed to do that on the Sabbath? Men. We generate and create these boxes and these restrictions for God. Well, he can only do this and he can only do that. God's sitting up there tapping his foot going, I cannot believe how my creation disrespects me. He was being indicted for showing mercy on the Sabbath. That's just spectacular to me. The religious system of that day was so twisted that if a person needed help on the Sabbath, you couldn't help them if that meant you had to break one of those man-made traditions to do it. If your neighbor's house was on fire, you couldn't help him put it out because you couldn't pick up a pail of water. Let it burn, baby. If your friend fell into a ditch, you had to leave her there until the Sabbath was over. Sorry, Betty Sue, here's a blanket. Oh, I can't hand you the blanket because that's carrying something. I hope you survive the night. I know there's wild beasts. I'll see you in the morning. If her leg's broken and she's screaming and writhing in pain, it's the Sabbath. Shouldn't have walked over a hole. If one of your children was sick, you couldn't carry him or her to a doctor. This is insanity, the stuff that they had bound themselves up with. By healing the crippled man on the Sabbath, God was, in effect, saying, Israel, you've regulated yourself right out of my will. You've regulated yourself right out of mercy. You've regulated yourself right out of compassion. And what did God say? He rebuked 
Israel, I believe it's in Malachi, he rebuked Israel by saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Translation, I want you to be merciful to one another. I don't want another second of your religion. I want you to be merciful. Incredible. The religious leaders understood Jesus' point. They understood that they were getting rebuked because Jesus had done something good on the Sabbath, and they understood that Jesus was paralleling himself in equality to the Father. They got all of it. Jesus was clear. They got it, and they were ticked off. They became infuriated. Not only was Jesus flagrantly breaking their Sabbath traditions, but he was also making himself equal with the Father in his person. At this point, they stepped up. It says their persecution. And it wasn't just name-calling or whatever it was that they were doing. They now began to instigate and plan on how they might kill him. The only way to deal with Jesus, fellas, is we got to get rid of him. He's got to go. we got to kill him off. We've got to eliminate them. They began to conspire. How can we get rid of this guy? He's horrible. Jesus is equal with the Father in his person, isn't he? Doesn't really matter what they thought or how they felt about it. Let's look at our second point. Jesus is equal with the Father in his works. 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, look at that, double emphatic. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And he says this, And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Wow. The first thing we notice in this little section is the double emphatic, truly, truly. A few weeks ago I told you that Jesus used that truly, truly when he wanted to make a highly important point. And it only appears in the Gospel of John. He uses it three times in verses 17 through 29. Three times right in this little chunk. In the strongest possible terms, Jesus defended his healing on the Sabbath by tying his activities directly to those of the Father. Directly to those of the Father. Jesus tells them that he is simply following his Father's example and doing what the Father does. The Father shows compassion and heals broken people, and and so does the Son, Jesus. The Son of God, Jesus, never, never once took independent action that set Him against the Father. He did what the Father showed Him to do. He did what the Father instructed Him to do. And He executed the Father's will and plan absolutely perfectly. If He had given in to... Uh, any one of the temptations that Satan or, uh, had brought against him, if he had disobeyed the Father's plan, the Father's will at any point, he could not be our Savior. He would be no different from us, just a sinner who needs to be redeemed. But Jesus executed the Father's plan perfectly. I love the connection there, the intimate connection. The Father, it's like a father and a son, right? The Father shows his son how to do something. And you get that there in this text. The Father shows the Son. We're talking about the incarnate Son, the human being of Jesus. Shows Him what and how to do something. And Jesus does it with excellence. I love the intimacy there. He's just following the Father's example. The Father shows compassion. Jesus shows compassion. The Father shows righteous indignation. Jesus shows righteous indignation. He mimicked, He copied 
his father. And if he had violated anything that the father had commanded, any law, anything that he had commanded, he would, he would not be our savior and we would be doomed. He is equal with the father in his works. And, but the father, however, it says there in the text, loves Jesus, he loves the Son, and he has even greater works to display to the Son that the Son will perform and lead the people to marvel. What he's talking about here is something that's beyond what he just did at Bethesda, right? At Bethesda, he healed a crippled man of 38 years. Greater works here is a reference to raising the dead because raising somebody from status of dead, is, to me, is a miracle that's beyond healing somebody. That's not healing. That's taking someone who's a corpse and making them not a corpse. That's a powerful, powerful miracle. And I'll tell you what, if I saw somebody get healed like that, I'd be pretty blown away. If I saw somebody get raised from the dead after being buried for four days, I'd run. I'd be in Sonora right now. What's up? I'm in Sonora. I got to get back down to the valley. I, I just, I'd freak out. That would cause me to marvel seeing somebody being raised from the dead. And obviously, who's, the, who's in view here Lazarus the man whom Jesus raised three days four days after he had died and been buried I love that text when you look at that story it, it says as you approach the, the tomb where Lazarus was buried it says in the King James he stinketh that's a funny word Phew! he stinketh why did he stinketh because he was deadeth for four daysith he stinketh he was dead. He was a corpse. Jesus called him out of the tomb and he came out alive. Incredible. The healing of the crippled man at Bethesda amazed the crowds, but the raising of Lazarus would literally cause them to marvel as it says. So Jesus is prophesying right here. He's talking about someone whom he's going to raise from the dead, isn't he? Hadn't even happened yet. It's going to happen later. He's talking about that. He is equal to the Father in his works. Let's look at our third point. Jesus is equal with the Father in His sovereign power, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. I love that text. The Father has sovereign power to raise people from the dead. He can raise them unto physical life, like we talked about, a corpse, a person who's been dead. He can raise that person to life. Or He can also raise someone up in spiritual life, someone who's alive but they're spiritually dead, he can raise their spirit up and give them spiritual life. He can do either one. He can do both. He can do them however he sees fit. And here Jesus declares that as the Son, he is equal to the Father in sovereign power, and he can give life to whom he chooses. Jesus can, can raise someone physically from death. He can raise somebody spiritually uh, from death. As God is the source of life, so Jesus Christ is the source of life. As God chooses when He gives life, so does the Son choose in perfect agreement with the Father. This is so perfectly illustrated by the salvation of sinners. All whom the Father chose before the foundation of the world to give to the Son will come to Him. And he will not reject any of them. You can read about that in John 6, 37. That passage right there, you could spend your entire lifetime studying that passage. 
It's so deep and profound that way back in eternity past, the Father chose the people whom He was going to give to the Son. And when they come to the Son by divine appointment and divine power, the Son doesn't turn any of them away. He doesn't say, sorry, I don't know you. He says, welcome to the family. It's amazing. John 6, 37. So far, Jesus has declared that He is equal with the Father in His person, in His works, and in His sovereign power. What do you suppose the religious leaders were thinking at this point? What do you think was going on in their minds? Wow, Jesus is really neat. Wow, Jesus is really cool. How about Jesus is a lunatic? How about Jesus is a nut job? How about Jesus should be at the psychiatric center out on claws? How about Jesus has lost his marbles? They're thinking this guy's bananas. He, he is sitting there telling them he's God and he's got all the, all the qualities and abilities of, of the Father and you know what they're thinking. Jesus is nuts. C.S. Lewis once said, I love this quote, he once said, people respond to Jesus' claims about himself in either of two ways. They say, when they hear who Jesus says who he is, like in this text, they say he is either the son of God or he is a lunatic. There's no in-between. He's either a nut job and he's crazy and he's lost it or he is who he says he is. Oh, man. Religious leaders were certainly in the second camp, right? They thought he was bananas. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was a lunatic. At one point, you don't believe me, at one point they even compared Jesus to Beelzebub, the prince of demons in Luke eleven fifteen. That's a pretty serious uh, indictment right there. Well, you're going around doing all these things and saying all these things and healing all these people, and you've got demonic power, and that's how you're doing it. The power of Beelzebub, the prince of all the demons, the worst demon on the face of the earth in all creation, you got his power, and you're doing his work, his bidding. It's amazing that the prince of demons is so charitable and kind that he goes around healing people. I mean, these guys are just like airhead, you know? I mean, really? The prince of demons? I thought there was death and destruction from Satan. He's the, he's, the, he's, the, he's, the, he's the father of lies. But they thought he was crazy and they, they called him Beelzebub. Oh, he's got the spirit of Beelzebub. The question I have for you just quickly is, who do you say Jesus is? Is he the son of God or is he a lunatic? Really can't be anything other than the two. Well, I, I think he's a, he's a good teacher and a good moral person. Okay, that falls short of who he is. Well, I think he was really nice. Okay. I think he's a good example. Yeah, all those things are true, but you can't stop there. He's either who he says he is or he's nuts. Either one. C.S. Lewis was right. So who do you say he is? Is he the son of God or a lunatic? Is he Messiah or a maniac? What we believe about Jesus is monumentally important, friends. We'll look at that a little bit in verses 24 through 29. Let's look at number 4. Again, Jesus was equal with the Father in sovereign power. Now number 4, Jesus is equal with the Father in His judgment. Verse 2-2, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So juxtaposed to God's sovereign power to give life is His sovereign power to judge and consign unrepentant unbelievers to everlasting punishment. So you've got, you've got sovereign power to give life, and then you've got sovereign power to absolutely destroy it in the fires of hell. God has both. His sovereign power includes the ability to do both. 
As the Son of God, Jesus also has the power to judge. In fact, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus said right here, the Father doesn't judge. I do. He's given me that responsibility. He's given me that power, that authority to do that. Judgment here refers to the day of judgment, which is so clearly articulated in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. It says, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's the day of judgment that's coming and Jesus is the judge. Now the Father's purpose in entrusting all His judgment to Jesus is revealed in the fifth and final point. Number five, Jesus is equal with the Father in His glory. Verse 23. You think these, uh, before I read it, these, these religious leaders were glorifying Jesus right now or cursing them in their hearts? Boy, they hated Him. How can we kill Him? Listen to 23. That all may, he just got done talking about judgment. Now he's saying that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. It is only fitting that He who is equal in nature, in works, in sovereign power, and in judgment would be accorded equal honor or equal glory, right? If Jesus is equal to the Father in every other way, then certainly He must be equal in glory. And that's exactly His point right here. In the same way that the Father is honored, the Son will also be honored. You remember what it says in Philippians 2, 10 and 11? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall what? Bow down and every tongue shall what? Confess that Jesus is Lord. What, does, what is that text actually pointing us to? The moment where all of creation bows in submission to the glorious Son of God. And you're not talking about just believers. We're talking about unbelievers too. And they're not doing it out of faith. They're doing it as a conquered people. Back in these days, when you conquered a nation, a kingdom, that nation became subjected to you and, and had to submit to you. And like Rome would parade all, the, the entire nation or at least the army of the nation they just conquered in front of them. And all these people would be made to bow down before their new emperor by force. If not, you'll get the spear. And then they would usually kill him anyways. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. On that day of judgment, believer and, believers will bow because they love Jesus. Unbelievers will be made to bow because they are a conquered foe. They have to submit to the conqueror. They have to. They'll be made to. It'll be supernatural. They'll be sitting there probably trying to fight it. Those knees will bust and they'll go down. And they'll confess He is Lord. And at that point, they're ushered off to eternal punishment. That's coming. That's coming. That's what is talked about in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. That's what Jesus is pointing to here. That moment where He will receive all glory as the Father receives glory, especially on that day of judgment. I want you to take notice of what Jesus said in the second half of 23. 
He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay? Did you guys really pick up on that part when I read it a minute ago? That's a, that's a very, very, that's the second half of 23. That's a very, very important half of verse. This was Jesus' way of telling the religious leaders and the nation of Israel because he is correcting both. They represent the nation. He's correcting both them and the nation. This was Jesus' way of, of telling the religious leaders and the nation of Israel if they reject him, they simultaneously reject the Father. If you reject the Son, you reject the Father. That's what Jesus is telling them. Now, you just got to think about it for a moment. There are a lot of religions in the world that claim to worship God. Lots. Islam, Judaism, right? That'd be a couple of prime examples. They, they're all about God the Father. They're all about worshiping God. They're all about bringing God glory. You know what Allah Akbar means? It means glory to God. That when they, when, they yout, when they shout that, when they chant that, Allah Akbar, glory to God. That's what it means. They think they're glorifying God. They think they're worshiping the Father. Uh, countless. There's uh, thousands of religions that are doing this. But Jesus made it clear that God cannot be worshiped. He cannot be honored. He cannot be glorified unless the Son is worshiped. Unless the Son is honored. Unless the Son is glorified, not only as Messiah, but as God. Do you understand what I'm telling you? We cannot get to the Father. What, what does the Scripture say? Jesus is the only way to the Father. We can't come to the Father unless we come through the Son. This is Jesus' point. These guys right here, with all of their religion, all of their regulations, all of their rules, all of their Sabbath restrictions, really believed in their heart of hearts they were worshiping the Father. We are worshipers of God and no one can tell us otherwise. And Jesus says, I am here to tell you otherwise. If you do not honor me, if you reject me, you reject him. It's as clear as day. If we reject Jesus... If we reject even the deity of Jesus, because there's some out there who say they love Jesus, but they don't believe he's God. If we reject Jesus, if we reject the, the deity of Jesus, if we reject the humanity of Jesus, we simultaneously dishonor the one who sent him. And in verse 24, Jesus issues a warning to, to the religious leaders and to Israel. In one verse, he summarizes what happens if we accept or reject the Father's provision for our salvation, Jesus himself, the Son of God. If we accept his provision, three things happen. A, we get eternal life. Verse 24a. He put it like this, truly, truly. Look at that, double emphatic again. I'm going to tell you something really, really important, guys. Listen up. That's what he's signaling to the religious leaders. I say to you, whoever hears my word. He's literally talking to them, telling them right there who he is. I'm the son. You've got to glorify me. You've got to believe in me. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, believing in the Father who sent me, that person has eternal life. There it is. B, the second thing we, we experience, we receive when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and all that he, he is, is B, we, get, we escape divine judgment. 24B, the verse is split up in three ways. 24B, it says, 24B, he does not come into what? Judgment. 
You know that day of judgment I just talked about from Philippians? On that day, you'll be worshiping in spirit and truth. You'll be loving what's playing out because you're not coming into judgment. See, we pass from spiritual death to spiritual life, 24C. He puts it like this, has passed from death to life. So, so if we receive Jesus, if we, if we believe in Jesus, if we submit to Jesus as, as, as our Messiah, as the Son of God, as, in the entirety, totality of who He is, we get eternal life, we, we, we escape divine judgment, and we pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. You can read about that in Ephesians 2. It's pretty big stuff. Well worth it. And yet if we reject the Father's provision for our salvation, the full person and work of Jesus Christ, the opposite will occur, right? We do not get eternal life. No, we don't get eternal life. And how, how do we define eternal life? I did it maybe a month ago. It is, it is being in relationship with the Father, with the Godhead, and spending all eternity with them with, a, full, with a, a fuller knowledge of who they are and experiencing all the goodness and blessing of God. Eternal life is the knowledge of who God is. Yeah, but you see, if you reject Jesus like the religious leaders here are, you don't get that. And, and we will not escape divine judgment on that day of judgment. That, that'll, that'll be your day. It says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in Hebrews 10, 26, somewhere in there. I think we take that so lightly today. And what else? We also will remain spiritually dead. And at some point we'll die physically and we'll, our spirit will go off to Hades until judgment. It's a real, real bad situation. You get a lot of really good benefit and blessing and all that God is in His goodness if we submit. And you get the exact opposite if you don't. So what Jesus is telling these guys He's basically saying, fellas, it's a matter of life or death. It's a matter of life or death, guys. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. Now, down in 25 through 29, Jesus presents two resurrections, and this ties into all of this. In 25 and 26, he deals with spiritual resurrection, and in 27 through 29, he deals with physical resurrection. Let's quickly go over both. Number one, spiritual resurrection, 25 and 26. Truly, truly, double emphatic. I'm going to tell you something real important. He says, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He says in 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Like I said, we see the third double emphatic, truly, truly, again, He's going to say something really important. What he has said to these guys is, is supremely important. He tells the religious leaders that an hour is coming and is now here when spiritually dead people will hear the Son of God's voice and then come to life. In doctrinal terms, we call this the effectual call. That's what Jesus is referring to here. He's not talking about physical resurrection. He's talking about spiritual resurrection. And, and this idea of, of someone, a dead sinner, hearing the voice of Jesus and responding positively to it, we call that in doctrinal terms the effectual call. 
When the gospel is preached, the message goes out in a general way for all who are present to hear it, right? You hear me preaching the gospel. I've been talking about it all morning so far. You hear it. It's going out in a general way where everyone in here can hear what I'm saying. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes and moves in power and He gives an unbeliever or unbelievers the ability to not only hear but understand and believe the gospel, respond to the gospel by faith. That is the effectual call. Jesus pointed to it in John 10, 27 when He said, My sheep listen to My voice. I know them and they follow Me. So the Bible speaks of two types of calls. You've got the general call, which is basic gospel preaching, and then you've got the effectual call, which is where the Holy Spirit comes in power and regenerates the un- an unbeliever, thus enabling he or she to respond in faith and repentance. That is what Jesus is pointing to here. He says, the hour is coming when this will take place, and it is also upon us. This means that when Jesus was doing ministry, the effectual call was going out to a handful of people. But on the day of Pentecost, a little bit later, it really came when the Holy Spirit came upon the earth. Now, Jesus associates the effectual call with resurrection because that is essentially what happens to a person who is being effectually called. He or she is being raised from spiritual death to spiritual life right at that moment. Right at that moment, that person literally, because of the work of the Spirit, passes from death to life. All of a sudden, it makes sense. Well, I remember when when it happened with me. I was at Big Valley, and Rick was preaching a very potent and powerful sermon. And I was like, after it was over, I said, did you email him and tell him what's wrong with me, Rachel? I don't even know the dude. He, he knows me. Who's been talking to him about me? Everything he said was me. What is wrong? Something is happening. I'm scared. And that was God cutting through and giving me, taking the heart of stone out, regenerating, giving me a heart of flesh to respond positively, giving me the gifts of repentance and faith. And I was like, I found what I've been looking for, finally. It was awesome. It was awesome. But I remember I was in church quite a bit before that moment. And I was sitting there going, this is the stupidest thing in the world. Look at this goober putting his hands up. What a dork. Can't wait to get out of here. That was me. And then all of a sudden, I was just one, one night on a Saturday night, I was just like, you got it in for me. You've been talking to him. This is weird. Something's going on. I don't know. I don't like it. He knows me. No, the word knows you, Phil. God knows you. I heard the voice of the shepherd, and I came to him. That's the effectual call. If you are a Christian, it is because God effectually called you through the preaching of the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit. You understand what I'm telling you? If you are a Christian, it's because God worked that miracle for you. If you are a Christian, it is because the Father enabled you to hear the life-giving voice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, through the ear, mind, and heart-opening work of the Holy Spirit. And yet many Christians today think they are the reason why they are Christian. Well, I prayed a prayer. Well, I, I came forward. Well, I gave my life to Jesus. Well, I did this or that. Well, I, I, I. And I'm like, I, I, I. When are we going to get to Jesus here? I hate your testimony. 
How can you say that? You're a pastor. I hate it because it's all about you. It's not right. I'm telling you, this line of thinking has more to do with humanism than Christianity. It does. Humanism says it's all about the person. It's all about you and you, 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 right? Maybe it's Maybelline. You're worth it. You deserve it, right? That's our culture. That's American Christianity in a sense. It's very soft, very palatable, very nice, very friendly, kind of like it was in the Roman Empire before it was crushed. I'll tell you, if we believe... If we believe in the doctrine of grace alone, we better start removing some of the eyes from our testimonies. And we better start saying, I was a, a disaster and God saved me. I was, I was a junkie and God saved me. I was an adulterer and God saved me. I was a bigot. I was a racist. I was this. I was that. I loved money. That was my God. That's as far as you get with you. Then put it all on Jesus. But today, me, 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 me. This is what I did. Me, me, me. And then there'll be another Christian there trying to out me him. Well, you don't even know. You have, thank God I don't because I'm going to go crazy. Can we start giving God the glory for what he's done in our lives? Grace alone means God alone, right? It means monergism, God alone. Why? Why? Why is it grace alone? Why is it God alone? Why is it all up to God? So that God gets all the glory for our salvation. Ephesians 2.9. It's by grace alone through faith alone. Why? So that no one may boast. You might have a lot of eyes down on this side of glory, but you won't have any eyes up there. If you make it, if you're real, let's take the eye out. Let's minimize some of the eyes in our testimonies. Let's talk about grace alone. Let's talk about the sovereignty of God. Let's talk about the glory of God. Let's talk about the goodness of the Son. Let's, let's put the glory and the accolades on Him. Let's put the gratitude on Him in all that we do. God is going to be glorified. Let's take a look at, now that, that, that spiritual resurrection, that effectual call that goes out, that person is raised to spiritual life. And that's not the only thing he talks about here. There's physical resurrection as well, 27 through 29. And the Father has given him, speaking of Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He says, do not marvel at this, uh, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. As with the authority to give life, the Father also gave the incarnate and submissive Son, Jesus Christ, the authority to execute judgment. Jesus received that authority because He is the Son of Man. That was His favorite title for Himself. His favorite moniker, Son of Man, it points to His humanity. As a man, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He was tempted just as we are tempted, but He never gave in to temptation and He never violated God's commands. This makes Jesus uniquely qualified to be mankind's judge. Adam failed as a man. He sinned. He gave in to sin, he gave in to temptation, temptation, his wife did the same thing, and they sinned. He failed 
as a man. And he is the head of all men. He is the federal head of all men. He sinned. But Jesus succeeded as a man, didn't he? He never sinned. And because of this, and because of his deity, he has become the ultimate judge of all men. Now, the religious leaders were astonished at Jesus' bold claim here. I mean, they were already fired up. And now it's going over the top because basically they think Jesus is saying, I'm going to judge you on resurrection day. They thought, how could a Sabbath breaker, a blasphemer be our judge? This is outrageous. They're just getting more and more angry. Jesus issues a final warning to them in 29 and 28. There is an hour coming where Jesus will judge the living and the dead. At that time, the souls of the righteous dead, now in heaven with the Lord, and the souls of the wicked dead, now in torment in Hades, will be given resurrected bodies fit for eternity. This is the resurrection that's coming. The righteous dead are those who have done good. That's what Jesus says here. But don't mistake in what he means. In the context, it doesn't mean what you think. It is not a reference to good deeds. Deeds. It is not a reference to works righteousness. In this context, done good is believing in the Father's provision for our salvation. And then obviously when someone believes, good deeds and good works and things are produced out of that life. It's not about earning your way here. He's not saying, well, people that do a lot of good stuff, they'll be raised in a positive way. And people, That's not what he's saying. But a lot of people say that's what he's saying. And that just completely defeats everything that I just preached. It's wrong. Doing good in this context is doing the right thing, and that's repenting and believing in Jesus Christ as God's provision. That's what it means to do a good thing there. The souls of those who believed in the person and work of Jesus Christ shall be joined with resurrection bodies that are fashioned for everlasting joy in the presence of an all-loving, merciful, gracious, kind, awesome God. So if you're a believer on that day of that resurrection day, you'll be, your soul will be joined with a new body that's perfect, no more cancer, no more strep throat, no more trouble, a body that's perfectly fit for eternal worship in the eternal presence of God where His joy, His fullness is experienced without any distortion that sin causes or anything else. That's what you'll get. And yet the wicked dead are those who have done evil which has to do with rejecting the Father's provision for our salvation. The souls of those who disbelieved in the person and work of Jesus Christ shall be joined with resurrection bodies that are fashioned for everlasting despair in the wrathful presence of God. A lot of preachers make a big mistake by saying that, that you know, what hell is, is it means separation from God. How can you ever be separated from the God who is omnipresent? God is all present, which means you can never be outside of his presence. What it actually means is you are separated from his good side. That's what it means. Forever and ever and ever. There's no grace in Hades. There's no grace in hell. There's only wrath and judgment. So there is a resurrection coming where the righteous receive bodies that are made for worship and joy and the wicked will receive bodies that are fashioned for really eternal destruction. It's amazing. It's like you experience destruction forever, but you're never actually destroyed. It's like being sick, but the sickness never goes away. It's going to be horrible. It's a horrible thing. 
Jesus basically tells the religious leaders that the resurrection of, and judgment of the righteous dead and of the wicked dead is coming, and he controls it. Now, these guys were from the Pharisees. That was a uh, religious group of that day. They believed in resurrection, but they were absolutely unwilling to repent and accept Jesus' testimony about himself. He didn't want anything to do with it. He wanted to kill him. Let's summarize. How is Jesus equal with the Father? Number one, he's equal with the Father in his person. Number two, he is equal with the Father in his works. Number three, he is equal with the Father in his sovereign power. Number four, he is equal with the Father in his judgment. Number five, he is equal with the Father in his glory. Boil it all down. Jesus is God. That's it. He is divine. He is the everlasting word who became flesh. He is God. He is eternal. God is what? God is who? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's triune. Jesus' big point to these guys, I am God. What happens if we accept by faith the Father's provision for our salvation, Jesus Christ? We get eternal life. We escape divine justice or ju uh, judgment and pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. What happens if we reject the Father's provision for our salvation, Jesus Christ, what He's accomplished for us? We will not get eternal life. We will not escape judgment, and we will remain spiritually dead. At the future resurrection and judgment of Jesus Christ, what will the righteous dead believers, that's believers, receive? Resurrection bodies that are fashioned for everlasting joy in the loving presence of God. What will the wicked dead unbelievers receive? Resurrection bodies that are fashioned for everlasting despair in the wrathful presence of God. Earlier I told you that, that what we believe about Jesus is is monumentally important. Is he who he said he is in our passage and throughout the Bible? Or is he a lunatic? What says you? Jesus has clearly shown what happens if we accept or reject the Father's provision for our salvation, Jesus himself. I just want to encourage you today to accept him with your whole heart, with your whole being, recognize that you're a sinner and that you need Him and that He's your only hope. It could very well be that the Holy Spirit is effectually calling you right at this moment. And it could be that it's just a general message that's bouncing off of you. Accept Jesus. Put your faith and trust in Him alone. And remember that old J.C. Ryle quote, which is one of my favorites, the ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all who need mercy and grace. Is the shepherd calling you today? Do you hear his voice? Come to me. I say come to him.